0: We're going to be in uh, Romans uh, chapter 12, please. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. but overcome evil with good. Well, I offered a
1: chance for a question and answer tonight, uh, just mainly because it's uh, been a long day for us all, and I thought it would be nice to cap off the day that way, and just a little more relaxing kind of uh, setting back and forth if uh, you want. Uh, I did receive one question uh, online, just uh, before the service here. And so I'm going to have us turn, while you're thinking of if you have any questions. And by the way, if you're online, thank you again for being there. We have several families or individuals watching. If you have a question that you would like to answer, we'll try to accommodate that. Um, How? Well, you could comment on the YouTube live stream. Uh, I'll rely on John to be watching there to see if uh, comments pop. or you could send a message to uh, to my phone here if you have my uh, signal or WhatsApp. But it uh, doesn't look like anybody's availed themselves of that already. So I'll leave that there, and we'll see if it uh, makes any racket. Uh, maybe around 7 o'clock, it's going to get a phone call from the school. So <laughs> I have to watch that. But um, anyway, if you have questions, we'll try to. Uh, make that available. Let's turn to numbers 21, the first uh question that I received uh on the message was in numbers 21. <clears throat> and uh in verses was it uh yeah, it was in numbers 21. Actually, the section starts in verse 4 down through 9. So I'll read that Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. You remember what the worthless bread was, right? That manna that they had been given. Uh, They're really degrading God's provision. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So obviously there is a miraculous provision here of God. There was also a forward-looking part of this where God used this incident to uh, prepare a sign which would be used by the Lord Jesus later on when he said, As the Son of Man or as the serpent was lifted up on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man also would be lifted up. So this was a critical uh, little event in the history of Israel. It also taught the people of Israel something uh, important, that they should be thankful to God for his provision instead of grumbling uh, at it. The question was, where did all the snakes go after they bit the people? Um, and obviously, the text doesn't focus on that. It, it moves on to the next uh episode in the life of Israel in the wilderness uh, wanderings. And um, so we can speculate perhaps uh, that they dissipated by kind of normal means or perhaps likely the people went after them and killed them. It doesn't say that these snakes were, uh, you know, immortal or uh, unable to be attacked. So it's quite likely, especially when, uh, well, you can imagine if you're if your community is overrun, you're going to probably bring in some bounty hunters and, uh, and say, look, take care of these snakes for us, and uh, you know, probably a few uh, teenagers wouldn't mind going around and whacking some snakes and all that stuff. So that's all speculation, of course. Uh, it says that the uh, Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. It doesn't really tell us that God specially created them or miraculously brought them uh, it could have been very simply that he providentially brought these snakes among them and so perhaps providentially just let them uh, dissipate and uh, come out, uh, you know, instead of they're coming out, maybe they come out at a certain season, God used that, they went back uh, into their whatever wilderness, their own wilderness wanderings as it were, these snakes, we just don't know so we could, uh, we could speculate but it doesn't uh, change much the meaning of the text for us, so that would be the answer that I would use for that. Oftentimes, uh, these, things are, these kinds of things are treated as fairly unimportant, and God just leaves them behind. It uh, doesn't really matter, uh, you know, but we can imagine perhaps what happened there. So that's a brief answer there. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, as satisfying as uh, you know, a very creative story about what could have happened, but uh, there it is. Let me also take us to a second. This is a more of a question for me, or more of an observation that I thought I've been observing more of lately, and I wanted to bring it to your attention. I've spoken to several people about this. I think we touched on it at the men's prayer yesterday, but I'll use First Thessalonians chapter four, verse eleven, as a uh, jumping-off point for this, and there are a number of other portions as well. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse number eleven. And this falls under the uh, general heading of w- why not to be a busybody or why not to be a meddler in other people's affairs or why not to stick your nose into other people's business kind of thing. And I notice that a lot uh, people spend a lot of time talking about, you know, this other church or this other family or uh, this school or you know, something that's uh, the controversy uh, du jour, you know, the controversy of the day, and they have nothing to do with it. They can't affect any change about it. Uh, it almost becomes um, kind of gossipy kind of material. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Paul instructs us. This must have been a problem in, in the, amongst the people of God. He instructs them that you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Now, this injunction is repeated a number of times in Scripture. If you go over to Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and also verse 11, it says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. If your body is not busy, then you might be a busy body. Okay? You need to keep yourself working, busy, doing productive things. Otherwise, you can fall into this. Because people by nature need something to do. You can't just sit in a chair all day and stare at a wall. Okay, so if you're not doing something productive, Stare at a computer, maybe, I should say. <laughs> uh, you, you, you have to uh, do something productive with your time lest you fall into becoming a busybody. And I just am convinced that uh, too many times we spend time doing, talking, uh, putting our nose into other people's business. That's not ours at all. Romans 14 talks about this when it says, look, to, to the fellows you know, this guy over here or the situation, to his master he stands or falls. He has to give an account to God. You have to give an account to God. He doesn't have to give an account to you. He's not your servant. He's God's servant, see? So you have to be careful of kind of putting yourself in between of trying to be a lawgiver that stands between God and, and this other person. First Timothy 5, um, verse number 13 Talks about uh, people who, younger widows who uh, cast off their first faith. And besides, Paul says in verse 13, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Now, today you don't have to wander from house to house. Facebook.com. That's where you go to get all the latest and greatest gossip and busybody news. You're watching what everybody does, all of their business, wasting your time looking at this stuff. You're being a busybody. You're meddling in other people's affairs. You're wanting to know everything. Stop, 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 and do your own thing. Aspire to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, do something productive rather than looking at everybody else's business all the time. I'm convinced this is a very important teaching, a very important part of sanctification. Sinning in this area is just like sinning in other ways, using foul language, being gluttonous, being lustful. This is also a sin. Let's go to 1 Peter 4.15. These are just four verses that I pulled up quickly, and I, I suppose there are more, but first, uh, uh, 1 Peter 4.15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. Those are some bad sins, aren't they? Or as a busybody in other people's matters. Well, that's that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a second tier sin. There, we don't have to worry too much about that. You know, the thieves and the murderers; those are the bad things. Peter doesn't make that that uh, distinction here, does he? Not at all. He says that uh, we're not to suffer as a busybody in other people's matters. That is a meddler, meddler, meddling in other people's affairs. All right, any follow-up on that? Separate question. Okay, hang on to that question. Let me deal with my third one here on my list, and then uh, we're going to take our brother's question here. Yesterday during the men's prayer, we talked about conscience And one of the questions that came up was a question from one of the men who said, where does intuition come into this matter of conscience? And uh, I thought I would uh, just look just a little bit at the definition of what intuition is because I think we have an intuition about what intuition is, but we're not really sure what it is. Um, So intuition is like a... um, it's an immediate understanding of something without needing to consult reason. Like, there's the split-second answer. This is the gut. Uh, this is the hunch that you have. Like, I think that's right. Sometimes in school, you know, the, the professor will delight to ask the class what their thinking is on a certain question, and their intuition pops in, and then he proves to them that they're totally wrong because of some amazing principle in physics or something like that, you know, and they just, the intuition can't handle uh, that sort of thing. But never in Scripture is it approved to abandon reason and just say, got it. Like, and what we talked about yesterday is that kind of got it idea. If it's informed well from Scripture and you've been saturated in the Word, instead of saturated in the flesh or the sinful nature, then maybe the answer you come out with at first is the right answer. Uh, whatever the situation is, whatever the question or whatever the you know guidance that is needed, hopefully it will come out right. But you're never wrong to pause and say, let me apply my brain consciously, conscientiously to this problem and consider because So what we kind of sort of said yesterday in kind of a summary fashion was that intuition uh, can be fed from uh, a good source or a bad source. And intuition is kind of connected to conscience. Your conscience feeds into there. You know, like if somebody presents you something that is revolting to you because it's so evil, I mean, you can instantaneously say, no, that's not even a thing that I would consider doing. And then they say, why? Well, then you're forced to go back and say, okay, let me engage the reasoning mechanism here and talk out why that is that I've made a snap decision that I'm not going to be involved in that grotesque, sinful thing. Uh, and so you're, if your mind has been informed by the Bible, it's, your conscience has been informed, and, and you're overcoming the, the fleshly nature and its desire for whatever pleasures there are in that grotesque sin, Um, then your intuition can come out on top, so to speak. But if you're not careful, your intuition can be driven by sin and uh, you can come out with a bad response. So you want a response that's godly rather than a response that's fleshly. We don't see in Scripture a specific reference to intuition. Again, I think because Scripture is wanting us to think, not to just react okay? Intuition is more of a reaction than it is a thinking process. So that's what I would say about that. The whole discussion of conscience is very interesting, and Jansen has been working through that with us uh, two times now. And um, so that has been good for us. Uh, We don't want to violate our conscience, but we don't want to follow our conscience if it's misinformed and unbiblical. (laughs) That's the other side of the equation. So Somebody can say, "That doesn't comport with my conscience, but does your conscience is your conscience in accord with God's word? If it's, if it's not in accord with God's word, your conscience can lead you in directly the opposite direction that it should be, um, used by, uh, by your, your heart, your mind, uh, your internal thoughts. So that is a little bit about intuition. Again, understanding immediately without the need for conscious reasoning. And that's where the danger comes in when you turn off reason. All right, that was it for that. I'm sure somebody watching might say, Well, I'd like to hear more about that, but we can't right now. So, Drew, you have a question for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that I had this opportunity, but I feel bad I didn't know this was an opportunity, but it might also to give you more heads up. Well, we'll try it. <laughs> All right, so my question is in 1 uh, Corinthians uh, 15. Okay. Okay. Okay, let me say that for the audience. 1 Corinthians 15 and we're starting in verse number 3. Go ahead. Right. I, right. I think that um Paul is uh it's I want to say it's in um I may be wrong. It's in 1 Timothy somewhere. Yeah. Um so the question if I let me try to restate it. So we read first corinthians fifteen three to four for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and i 'm if i 'm understanding your question right, it is in accord accordance with which scriptures are which scriptures are we talking about? Is it possible that these are New Testament scriptures that the apostle Paul is referring to or are you maybe missing something in the Old Testament that would be a clear answer to your question? So, um, when the when this Bible here, when Paul says that he has uh, delivered this truth, and he gives the truths: number one, that Christ died; number two, that he rose from the dead; um, and then says those were in accordance with the scriptures. I would read that as in agreement with the teaching of the scripture. Not necessarily that he has a particular verse in mind, although he may well, but it doesn't require us to have a verse that says, the Messiah will be killed and then three days later he will rise again. And we know that because we don't find that in the Old Testament. Um, We find the allusion, as you have said, to Jonah by the Lord, Uh, as he was three days and three nights. But nobody who read Jonah would understand that that had a reference to to Jesus because it don't, you know, take your seat, fasten your seat belt, but Jonah does not have a reference to Jesus. You can't hunt around in the code or underneath the hood and find Jesus there, okay? It's a historical account which Jesus used by way of analogy in order to show that. and, And, of course, God designed ahead of time, knowing that he himself would use that text of Jonah in the future, he designed ahead of time that Jonah would be there three days, three nights in the fish, so that Jesus could say that, but that doesn't mean that the reader of Jonah or anybody subsequent to that would be able to find that in there. So we're not going to find a three-day text that I'm aware of in any of the Old Testament scripture, um, but we don't have to find that text in the Old Testament for this to be true and Paul having in mind just the Old Testament. I'm just going to set aside for a moment the possibility that there's a New Testament scripture and just focus on the fact that there's an, there are Old Testament scriptures. So, for example, when the uh, P- apostle says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, He doesn't have to be referring to a verse that says the Messiah died for our sins, one verse. He could be uh, thinking, because he knows the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures so well, of a complex of texts, a set of texts that teach that truth. Daniel 9, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself, but for others. Uh, He could be thinking of Isaiah chapter 53, in which the Messiah was uh, the suffering servant and bruised and and uh, p- pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief and he you know gave his soul an offering for sin and all of that uh, that uh, you know Thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol Psalm sixteen um, I will behold your face um, uh, let's see what else um, we have a clue about that in Acts when in uh, Peter's preaching. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to put my finger on it just at the moment. Um, Yes, in Acts uh, 2.24, "...whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it." Peter continues, "...David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Um, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." You made known to me the the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you about David, that he's dead, he's buried, his tomb is with us to this day. But therefore, being a prophet, verse 30, Acts 2, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that by the fruit of his body, or of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus is God raised up, of whom we are all witnesses. And I've kind of snuck in here to the second truth, and that is that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures by using Peter's preaching there in Acts 2. Peter sees those Old Testament texts as backdoor proofs that Jesus had to rise from the dead, that, that David, being a prophet, foresaw that. His offspring is there. Uh, there's going to be a suffering portion, but there's also going to be a resurrection portion. I mean, if he says, you won't leave my soul in Sheol or Hades, well, that must mean his soul got to Hades somehow. That's death. And then to get out of that, if you're not going to be left there, you're going to get out of that, which means... David, you've got to be raised again to life. There's no other way around it, and he's got to do that so that he can sit upon the throne. David had such faith in God that he says, Look, if the Messiah is going to stay in Sheol for a time and come out, he has to come out because he's been promised to me to be the seed which will sit on my throne forever. So, by logical extension, it has to be that he will rise again from the dead. So Let me say this too, when it says he was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, it doesn't necessarily have to be that the scripture references the third day. All this requires to be true is that when it says that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture, as long as the scripture says he rises or he rises on the third day, That is a true statement. Does that make sense? So the third day is perhaps new revelation. It's new information. It's added detail. But the fact that he would rise again from the dead is definitely according to the scripture. So we don't have to trouble ourselves hunting for a three-day passage in the Old Testament for this very thing to be true. Um, Let's go back to that Daniel 9 and uh, just see that because that is a powerful text, often, I think, overlooked, probably because we don't know our Old Testament as well as we could. In Daniel 9, uh, verse number 26, it says, And after the 62 weeks, now, just to get the timeline clear here, the the, the weeks, there's seven and then 62 and then one more. And so you have the seven seven, and you have the 62 and the one. And he says, after the 62, uh, would you allow me to summarize it by saying what after the 62 means is after the 62, after the seven, before the 62. So it's after the 69, but don't charge me with changing 62 to 69. I'm taking it contextually that we have three chunks of time and uh, it's after the second chunk of the three chunks that we're talking. After that, 62, which is cumulatively 69, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. It's not his fault. It's not his sin. It's not his crime that caused him to be cut off. In the Old Testament, only the sinner should die, right? This is the odd thing. In the Old Testament, in in the law, you couldn't kill the father for the sins of the son nor the son for the sins of the father. You couldn't kill the spouse for the sins of the other spouse. Uh, it had to be that the soul that sins shall die. But hear this unusual statement that after this period of 62 sevens, 62, year, 62 groups of seven years, the Messiah would be cut off. So first of all, the fact that Messiah would be cut off, it's, un, it's incomprehensible to the Jewish mind. I mean, they're thinking the Messiah, he's going to reign over the nation of Israel for a thousand years. Well, they didn't know a thousand. We know a thousand. But he's going to reign over us forever. From, this, from you know, the sea to the ends of the earth, he's going to reign over all the nations. And, but he's going to be cut off? That's number one. And this had to... This had to grip Paul's mind as a rabbi student. What does this mean? Well, when he met Jesus, he figured out what it meant. He couldn't figure out what it meant before that. And then it says, and the, uh, but not for himself. Again, you're only cut off for your own sins. So if you're not cut off for your own sins, like this says, and, it, and Messiah couldn't be cut off anyway because he was going to be like a, a, a tremendous person. So if he's cut off, but it's not for himself, who is it for? Why was he cut off? Well, it had to be for somebody else. So just on the basis of that text alone, Paul could say, Christ died for our sins, and that agreed with the Bible. That agreed with the Bible. Uh, And the fact that he rose again the third day, That also agrees with what the Bible says, not that the third day detail was given in the Old Testament, but that the resurrection is implied in the Old Testament. Um, Even as far back as, um, remember Job, we looked at this morning a couple of times. In Job, um, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold, and not another, it seems to be equating the Redeemer with God, which is not a real big surprise. But we know that this is a, a reference to Jesus Christ; He's the Redeemer, um, and so all in in uh, agreement or in accord rather with the Scriptures. Now, remember, I set aside a moment ago the whole idea of the New Testament references. And I was thinking about one where um, Paul quotes, and I ought to know this because I studied it before, but see, this is where I have to have my computer because I can look at my notes quicker, more quickly this way. Um, It's in the passage that has to do with the uh, worker is worthy of his hire, and uh, it's in First Timothy, I was going to say two seven for some reason, but I'm thinking of something else. Um, prob- what's that? Yeah, Jansen is saying chapter 5, and I was going to say 5.17. Let elders rule well, be counted uh, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain, this is it right here. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. In verse number 18, it's quoting from Deuteronomy 25, four. you know, um, elders who rule well, don't be uh, insulted by being likened to an ox, but uh, that's what it is. And um, obviously, God doesn't, you know, Care for oxen per se. In fact, Paul uses that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians nine to talk about remuneration for gospel work. But um, don't muzzle out the ox. That's uh, twenty five four of Deuteronomy. And then um, the worker is worthy of his wages. Where does that come from? Anybody have a footnote there? How about Luke ten seven? Matthew, Mark, Luke 10, 7. Now, this is Paul writing fairly late, 1 Timothy. and Luke 10, 7, the Lord says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house, and so on. So the Lord is instructing his 70 disciples going out to prepare his way as he went throughout the village's and the hamlets of the nation of Israel. So this is an example where Paul in 1 Timothy quotes as Scripture. The Scripture says, Deuteronomy 25, that's Scripture, Luke 10, 7, that's Scripture. So he does, we do have an example of him using New Testament Scripture as as it were Scripture to justify a point that he makes. So could he be referring in 1 Corinthians to Luke or to Matthew or to written sources that came before them that were circulating uh, before the time, uh, quite possibly so. I don't know that for sure, um, but it is is—it's certainly possible. Although, as I said, we don't have to resort to New Testament scriptures to save the day here. We can uh, use the approach that I suggested earlier about... Um, you know, looking at the Old Testament scriptures and not demanding that they have every little detail in them, like three days. But it's still true that the scripture is in accordance with itself, with that history. All right, follow-up, Drew, is that good? Okay, all right, very good. Uh, Did you come up with a stumper yet back there? Okay, he does have a question. It's probably going to be, how do you keep little children in order in your home? Matthew 27, verse 52 or so. So while you keep asking a question, I'll be watching, the, looking at the verses here. Okay, so Jansen is asking about Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two, which says, and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This is at the moment, in the text, it's at the moment that Jesus died. He cried with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom, and the earth quaked and rocks were split. The graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And let me read verse 53 also. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay. So the question that Jansen is asking is, although Scripture seems to be silent about the fate of these people, when do I think that they ascended? You're talking about ascended. So Jansen is, with that question, assuming that they didn't die again, although a follow-up part of his question was, did they die again? And uh, I have fancied uh, the interpretation that they did not die again because Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was the firstfruits of those who slept, and that's 1 Corinthians 15 and a number of other portions of scripture but he was the first fruits to rise to a glorified body and it seems fitting to me that the lord god would then also resurrect a number of people who were special people we'll say you know i don't know who they were um, in the same manner and that they would be seen in the city of jerusalem for a brief period of time the text is so sketchy about or scant, I rather should say, about information that we just simply can't say how long they hung around, uh, how many people saw them. I mean, it does say many who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after the resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. So there were many eyewitnesses. This is not just another uh, 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 kind of a mythical situation or what could I say, a hallucination or wishful thinking or something like that. It was a highly unusual circumstance that uh, had happened in the city of Jerusalem and around the city. So uh, I would say that the most satisfying answer, because of the timing of it, is that they were resurrected to glorified bodies, therefore they didn't die again. So then we have to deal with, well, what happened to them. And I think... These, this kind of situation probably easily explained that you know, they were seen a day or over a course of a couple of days, but then you know, the uh, initial um, hubbub dies down. Uh, the, the people that have seen them uh, you know go to bed for the night, and they can just disappear any time after that. God can, uh, us, they can ascend to heaven. We don't even know if Jesus was, was during that time kind of back and forth Some people think that he went up, you know, ascended. I am ascending and and back and forth. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't taken that, you know, strong a position on that. But he certainly could have taken them as uh, trophies, if you will, up to heaven to uh, present them before the Father uh, because of his resurrection work uh, there amongst the uh, people. So that's what I would say for that, although I admit... The information is scant. I would love to know more. Probably somebody will or has made a movie about this, and that will tell you everything you need to know, right? (laughs) Uh, Who knows? Uh, There's a a, uh, fictional story that I just saw advertising for about a Roman soldier who is tasked with going to find the body of Jesus after he's found missing from the tomb. And uh, I, I don't know enough about the story to be able to say or or give any uh, spoilers or anything like that, but I'm suspecting that he uh, comes to the end of his search and he realizes this guy actually did rise from the dead, and now I've got to deal with my soul because of that situation. Um, and so it's, you know, it's good sanctified imagination per se to uh, say what, what did the soldiers do after uh, the body of Jesus disappeared? And perhaps Pilate ordered there to be a search, a hunt uh, for him. Um, we do know that the, uh, the so it, it seems a little unlikely because the soldiers were told you know we'll secure you if this comes to the governor's ears uh, because of that bribe money that they were given remember the soldiers given by the high priest and so it seems like they would have kept it kind of on the down low uh, hush hush but how could news like that not have reached the governor when he's the one who assigned Jesus to be scourged and then to be crucified. Uh, so again, the text doesn 't tell us, but perhaps it did reach the governor 's ears. perhaps the soldiers did have to be protected by the chief priests, or maybe they didn't succeed in protecting those poor soldiers, and uh, the soldiers had ended up dying anyway. we, we don 't know. so all right, anything else? Question wise. I'm looking, and I am seeing no messages on this device. Anybody else? All right. Well, we're going to let you go 10 minutes early. Give me that 10 minutes later sometime, okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the uh, privilege to be here tonight and talk about some Bible questions. Uh, Lord, for the day, it's been a wonderful day. Uh, We've had safety thus far. We pray for that the remainder of the day. We've had health. We've had family. We've had friends to our homes. Uh, we've ministered to one another at American House and how we thank you for that. And I, I pray too for those that are at home, although we can't reach out and shake their hand or give them a hug, we'd be able to do that soon. Thank you for loving us, sending your son, handing him over for our offenses and raising him again for our justification. Blessed and precious truth. May we live by it in Jesus' name, amen.